I think on this album, my favourite is the opening track, Balulalo by Jamie Burton, and it's a very, very simple lullaby for the baby Jesus, and it's my favourite because it's just designed for the way that we produce music. You know, it's, it's, it's got wonderfully close set harmonies that I think we can really deliver. There's something about the nature of the writing in that piece and the forces that we have that I think means that they meld together really well. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. The King Singers is a group of six amazing male singers, which through various personnel changes over the years has, in 2018, celebrated 50 years of performing worldwide and releasing beautifully recorded albums, which have won two Grammys and one Emmy, among many other awards. And today we'll hear selections from their 2021 release Christmas carols. The King Singers are on the Brigham Young University campus today as part of the Bravo Professional Performing Arts Series, and it's my privilege to speak in good faith today with Jonathan Howard, who sings bass with the group. Johnny, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. Being a member of the King Singers since September of 2010, you are a busy man, but I have learned that you have always been a busy man. <laughs> Maybe cramming in too much? I think, yeah. I'm someone who doesn't like to say no to things. And I think the the toxic combination of a kind of crippling fear of missing out, but also a desire to to take advantage of the opportunities I have being a King Singer and traveling so much around the world means that if I'm at home, making up for having been away a lot, and if I'm away, I'm making sure I'm taking advantage of being away. So I think as I get older, it's it's mellowing a bit. But nonetheless, I think people would still say, do you ever just sit still? And the answer is rarely. <laughs> well, good. You were well prepared then for this life. So many beautiful pieces on your new Christmas Carols album. I have had fun listening through to the recordings and jotting down a few of my favorites. Can I ask, do you have such thing as a favorite Christmas piece on that album or oh my word. any Christmas piece? I think on this album, my favorite is the opening track, Balulalo by Jamie Burton. Jamie Burton's a friend of the group. He's a, he's a British composer who now runs the festival chorus at Tanglewood in New England. and. It's a very, very simple lullaby in praise of the baby Jesus, or for the baby Jesus. And it's, I think, my favorite because it's just designed for the way that we produce music. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's got wonderfully close set harmonies that I think we can really deliver. All of the music on the album is beautiful, and I hope that we do it all really well. But there's something about the nature of the writing in that piece and the forces that we have that I think means that they meld together really well. As I listened, I wrote down the words soft, wistful. I don't yeah. know if that captures it, but there is this really gentle, nostalgic mood somehow in that piece. Absolutely. I agree. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. As the bass in the group, sometimes the tenors get all the solos, at least in opera. Mm -hmm. But how is that? How does that compare being the rock-solid foundation? Are you busy being that sometimes more than getting to sort of leap out with the solo line? Yeah, I, but I also think it's interesting when there are only six of you in a group, no one can hide. So everyone is pretty <laughs> visible. And people know that you provide a function as the base and they respect that. Also, I get 
a high number of comedy moments that lots of others don't get. So huh. I think in terms of a concert, you may not see me with tens of breakout solos, but there, there'll be lots of moments where you'll definitely notice that I'm there. And I think that the key thing is that when you have a sex tech like ours, everyone has their, their moment in the spotlight mm. without anyone taking too much time in it. So I hope that I take the stage or take hold of the stage when I need to and people don't forget about me, but I also don't resent <laughs> my my wonderful kind of colleagues with higher registers having more of the solo lines. Growing up, did you know who the King Singers were? I did. I wasn't as aware as some of my colleagues because I was the one who wasn't a chorister in a church or a cathedral when I was younger. I was just in a local community choir and mm. we sang songs, you know, musicals and spirituals and things like that. And only when I went to to high school when I was about 15, 16 did I start singing in a chapel choir and then I went to university and continued that. I became first aware of the King Singers probably when I was about 16 and we were singing a King Singers arrangement and I just wanted to hear what it was like on YouTube. And I liked the video, but I didn't sort of follow them particularly until I got to university and I was probably in my third year. And I remember, I mean, this is an overshare, but I would be sitting in my, in my room in my dressing gown, eating cereal, watching King Singers videos, working out how to do it myself. <laughs> and then thinking, oh, that, that, you know, that's extraordinary. What That's that's kind of a level. We just, we, you know, well done them. That's, uh, we'll just do our thing and we'll be grateful that there are groups like this in the world that exist that create this music. So it was very funny when I was then invited to audition about two years later. I thought, I don't quite know how I'm here. But I've spent so much time watching, I mean, particularly there are like five videos that I'd watched probably a hundred times just to uh-huh. try and work out how to do them and I thought, okay, I've, I've done as much preparation as I might have subconsciously done, so well done. The angel Gabriel from heaven came. His wings as drifted snow, his eyes as flame. All hail, said he, the lowly maiden Mary, most highly favoured I was listening particularly for the bass part on all of these pieces. So here is my favorite bass part on the album, which is the traditional, the Angel Gabriel. Interesting. I love that bass part. Oh, well, thank you very much. Do you have a piece on here or in your regular repertoire that you think, oh, good, this one comes up and I get to do what I can do? Oh, well, there's actually there's a piece in the concert, which is not a Christmas piece, actually, but it's from our Finding Harmony album, which was an album we released last year, which is all about the power that music has had to bind people together in times of triumph or disaster or, you know, just needing to rally together. And it's a song from the civil rights movement. It's If I Can Help Somebody, yes. um, a favourite of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I have a big second verse solo, but it's, it's really low set. It's sort of, it starts in a bottom E flat. Mm. And I think that it's interesting because that's, I think I do it well, and I think it's also something which only I can do in the group, just where our ranges sit. If I can do my duty as a Christian oft, if I can bring back beauty to a world... The album starts off unison, sort of a plain chant. Christus natus est, mm-hmm. which only shows as you travel through 
the extraordinary range of styles that you are supposed to be able to nail <laughs> with this group, which is one of the delights of having the King Singers come, something that will bring you to tears and then something unexpectedly humorous, all the rest. Will you tell me about growing up, and I'm thinking of the English choral tradition, mm -hmm. often in beautiful cathedrals, acoustically beautiful as well as mm. uh, aesthetic buildings, but music written to be bounced off of stone walls yeah, in a, such an inspiring way in those spaces. Did you grow up in the church? Well, yeah, I did. So my, my father is a vicar. And my mother also worked in the church. And so I have been going to church my whole life. And I have a musical family. My family aren't musicians, but th there's always music playing and there's always a lot mm. of singing. And my first church, the one that I grew up in, was actually a, a, a Baptist church in um, South London. And we would go every Sunday and it had a band and all of the words were printed on the overhead projector. Mm. And it was, it was very modern Christian music. You know, the, the hymns that I remember very clearly are things like Shine, Jesus, Shine, and things, you know, you shall go out with joy. Like, and, and I memorized hymn books for fun when I was three because I was an only child and I had a cassette player. So, I mean, I really am well acquainted with this repertoire. And it was only when I went to secondary school. My father was a teacher as well, and he moved to a boarding school, which I then went to, which is a, a beautiful old boarding school in Sussex, south of London, which has the oldest school uniform in the world. We all look like Harry Potter black woolen coats to the floor and yellow socks above the knee and white bands like a priest and and the school has this extraordinary chapel it's a it's a massive thing with huge paintings on the walls that's exactly the kind of space that a lot of this music was written for and, and yes. that was sung in the in the chapel every weekend service you know the choir would prepare music anthems canticles, whatever, uh, responses. And that's where I became really familiar with this other church music tradition, one that was kind of designed specifically for spaces, as you say, with organs that were also made to fill those spaces, mm. as opposed to the, the kind of slightly more shoeboxy church I'd grown up in, the Baptist one, with the band. And I do think it's amazing if we, if we think about the grandeur of so many British cathedrals, churches, chapels, and the relationship that there is between the music, the space, and the people. I think particularly about like the visuals of the chapel, the, the acoustics of the chapel, the nature of the organ and the spacing of the pipes, and then also the, the way the sound would kind of reverberate within the building. I do think that that's really special. We're glad to get a glimpse into that kind of magical world. Music is many things, at least for me, for many people, mm. it's nothing though if it's not feeling. And I'm wondering, did you make a connection between the words in the music and your faith? Were you stirred by that? Maybe what I'm asking is, did you find God in the music growing up? I think not when I was younger. For me, I think when I was younger, the words were just simply a means to be able to sing the melodies and to be part of the musical journey, the fabric of the services. And it's only latterly that I've actually started to think about the words that I'm singing when I'm, say, singing a hymn or singing, uh, maybe less so when you're singing an anthem or something, but certainly in hymn singing. Mm. 
to engage with the words and to, to recognize their beauty is something which is wonderful. As long as we anticipate at some point engaging both with the music and the text, it's fine to come either through the text or through the music in the first instance and, and be closer to the reason behind the hymns in the first place mm. through that. I wonder if you would tell me about memories you might have of personal Christmas traditions in your home or, or now. Oh, it's very funny. Growing up in this boarding school where we lived as well, because my, it's kind of a residential campus boarding school, there were so many traditions that happened over the course of the week beforehand. Mm. And I remember very clearly that the children of the staff at the school who all lived on the site, on the on the campus, when you hit 13, it was your responsibility to kind of rewrite and direct and stage a play, which had then a nativity play within it, which was done mm. by, by other children, but a play in which all the children who were younger than you who lived on campus would act in. So it was this extraordinary kind of community-based artistic undertaking that took two weeks from the end of term up to Christmas Eve, where every single family with a child sort of came together in order to try and make this thing possible. And everyone would bring in some kind of prop and everyone would help <laughs> make a costume. And you, you only, you know, you'd finish writing it on like December the 10th. You start rehearsing on December the 12th and it would be like six hours a day, which is crazy because your actors are 10, you know, and <laughs> you, you would then on Christmas Eve at 4 p.m. perform this to everyone, all the adults, everyone else on the campus. And then... Of course, there was Midnight Mass, which everyone would go to. So they would traditionally then after that go to the pub locally and then go to Midnight Mass and then come back home. And then the following morning, everyone would go back to church again at 11. What kind I of think rhythms. going to the pub before the Midnight Mass could maybe instill a certain type of enthusiasm yeah, for, the, no. for the event. Well, absolutely. <laughs> everyone is way more aggressive with the descants when they've, when they've been to the pub for two hours. But it's, it's wonderful because it's these rhythms really bound the community together. To have something that felt like Christmas, I would go back to the Christ Hospital Chapel on Christmas Day at eleven, and I would I would sing hymns in that building, and I would I, that would really connect me to my memories of Christmas past. I would like to ask some personal faith questions Please, yeah, about yeah. your story. Aside from music, are there things that connect you with the divine, or where you feel where you feel connected with something beyond ourselves, with God, whatever that is? That's an interesting question. The answer is always yes, but are there specific activities? I think I often get it when I'm in the air, mm. which sounds weird. I mean, we spend a lot of time on planes, and there are moments where you're sort of floating above the Atlantic or somewhere over the North Pole. Somehow you have a greater sense of distance and perspective. I mean, that physical distance is obvious, but I think that there is something true about being uncontactable in those moments and, and mm. just being able to exist in your own kind of mental cocoon that I think gives you the space to consider slightly more, slightly deeper questions of life or the meaning of life or, I don't know, ponder your gratitude. And I think partly because I'm always so grateful for the fact that I do get to move around so much. Mm. And it was it was really profound when we flew out to the States on Monday because we've not been here for 20 months, which is the longest I've not been in the States in my adult life by about 18 months. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's extraordinary. Yes. So I was incredibly grateful then. But there are circumstantial things about life at any given stage, which I think make you particularly grateful and therefore reflect on your spirituality and your faith. And I occasionally find myself just staring out the window, being incredibly grateful. And I think that those are feelings that I've had often, but they're now being triggered by a new experience. I loved hearing you mention gratitude. I heard it said once that Allowing yourself to feel gratitude is giving love to God, which opens your heart to receive it in return. Hmm. So that rings true for me personally, th those moments yeah. of gratitude, well, what they do for you. I had a funny moment last 
Tuesday where we, we did our first concert in London since, I think, 2019. And it was sold out and it was the, the launch of our Christmas album and the first Christmas program we did and the last one we're doing in London for a while. And we all had so many friends and family come to that concert. I mean, I think it seated 750 or something and I'm sure at least 400 of those people were close. <laughs> sort of mad looking out of the audience thinking, I, I know you and I know you and I know you. In the days leading up to that and then the days following on from that, there were so many moments where people were incredibly kind or generous with their praise or forthcoming with their, their thoughts on our friendship and their relationship to me. And one of my best friends from school asked me the following day if I'd be godfather to her daughter. And it was interesting. There's this sort of this wonderful moment of reconnection which happened through this concert, which made me think like, oh, this is wonderful. It was this reciprocal gratitude. People saying thank you for, for being you and for what you do. And me being able to have all these people there and, and literally say from the stage, thank you all for everything you mean to all of us, because we didn't know how long it would be until we're back here. And to be able to do it for the mm. first time again with all of you here is incredibly profound and moving. That's lovely. Thank you very much. We are so happy with the number of places you could go that you've returned many times here on campus. It's a kind of a tradition that we look forward to when you come. And occasionally there'll be a new person pop up. So we get the familiar, but also mm. the excitement of how will this change the sound and all of that. Can you talk to me about the audition process and how that worked? Did you sing with the group so they could hear the blend? It's exactly that. The first bit is that you sort of get called or emailed and say, do you want to audition? And you're not sure how anyone's got your phone number or your email address. And you think, who's my stalker? <laughs> but the rounds of auditions are all just like rehearsals. Mm. Essentially, the first one tends to be a very short rehearsal, like sort of 20 minutes. And I was asked to prepare three pieces, one from memory, two with music. And it was just for them to gauge, like, what would it be like to have this person in the lineup? You know, just on a, on a gut first instinct feeling. Mm. And then the second round is much more involved. I think for me, it was an hour. And but I that had... first one, so brief. And then yeah. when you walk out the door, what were you thinking? Like, did that happen? Yeah, well, I think what was really weird is, so as I said, I was 23, just turned 23. I wasn't trying to be a singer. I was working in advertising in London. And I was also the first person to audition in both the first and second rounds mm. for me, so of everyone. So they'd had no other bases before they heard me. So I left being like, I think I've got that all right. I think it's gone pretty well. And then and then I, the same thing happened with the second round. It's like, I don't think anything's gone wrong. I have no idea. But the truth is, they all sort of thought the same. I, I remember talking to them afterwards and they're like we were really impressed but more to the point is we just had no reason not to put you through like there's we had no one to compare you to so we just had to take you on your own terms and you did everything <laughs> we needed so we put you through i had only sung with the group for an hour and 15 minutes before they appointed me and i'd had like a 20 minute 20 25 minute conversation with their manager so she could just gauge that i was sane but it's interesting now we sort of tend to do at least three rounds of auditions we mm -hmm. make people learn loads of music and they probably sung with us for about three hours by the end of it and it's it's interesting. I tend to believe that the gut gets it right. And that's why the first round audition could be so short. Because you, to be honest, you know in the first 20 seconds. But it would just be rude to, to be like, <laughs> so Let him finish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've learned all this music for us, so I'll give you 15 minutes. You have to tell me honestly. Were your parents over the moon? Are they so proud? Well, I think what was funny is like, I mean, particularly my mum, she'd always thought that I would be a singer, but she just never, ever wanted to push me in that direction. There was a funny thing when it happened and my mum was like, this was destined to happen. You know, like this was, this was always God's plan and you couldn't have changed that. And that's, you know, isn't it wonderful that you found your way here right now? And I think what was particularly interesting is that to join the King Singers means you're literally just plopped straight into a very successful international touring ensemble. You don't have any of that moment where you're like building your career. It seems like dropping from a helicopter on a train that's already moving. Yeah, it's exactly that. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, okay, I've been in the group for a week. I'll go and do four concerts in Singapore. You know what I mean? Just 
Okay. And and that that kind of thing seems to happen all the time. So I think there's a a funny balance always to kind of be struck with kind of particularly when a new person joins of being like look you're new we will help you and also being like you've got to be really quick because (laughs) everything is programmed and we've got 14 concerts this month in eight countries and there are nine programs go here are 20 pieces to memorize by by 3 p.m yeah I don't know why I didn't know this, but it's the I, 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 I. Yeah. Which in the US we know is the Frito Bandito song. Really? I am the Frito Bandito, which was an old ad for corn chips. Wow, I didn't know that. But to, to find out, oh, that was actually historical music. It's, yeah. it's quite a lovely Spanish piece. And I wonder if you'd tell me what the meaning is. Cielito lindo. Well, it's just a love song. It's it's a love song, and it's basically the man singing to his beloved. Cielito lindo means like sweet baby, sweet darling, mm. whatever. It's glorious. And it, this is from the Finding Harmony album. Yeah, but it has such amazing significance in Mexico. Like it is, it really is a second kind of unofficial national anthem. Everyone knows it. Everyone sings it everywhere. And I remember the first time we performed the full program, there was a Mexican girl in the audience who must only have been about 16. And she came up to us afterwards just like, you know, crying and crying and crying. So you have no idea how, how much that song means to me and particularly mm. my relationship to, with my father. I guess we all have songs that mean a lot in our own countries. And, you know, there are, there are very obvious things like national anthems, the Star Spangled Banner here, whatever. And it's funny to discover what they are in different languages in different parts mm. of the world and, and how poignant they are to lots of people. Gaudete, gaudete Christus es natus, ex Maria Virgine, gaudete, gaudete, gaudete Christus es natus, ex Maria Virgine, gaudete. I love the rhythm of Gaudete. Gaudete, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's, I mean, that's an arrangement that's been in our library for a very long time. It was arranged by the first ever bass in the King's Singers, Brian Kay. Mm. And I think it's fun because it's just, it's a real staple of our Christmas touring. You know, that I think it is the King's Singers arrangement, and we've heard other people do it, and they're always like, thank you so much for creating this. I think what's cool is it's just, it has, there's an element of the dance about it, and yet it's, yes. what, 600 years old. And that's kind of testament, hopefully, to our kind of commitment to variety, historically, musically, within programs. You know, that it's sandwiched between pieces that are much more modern than it, you know, romantic pieces from Scandinavia and also beautiful English pieces from the the 20th century. Like, and it's lovely to be able to put that in the middle and say this still works. It has traveled well over the centuries (laughs) because it it delights me to hear it. I've heard it done as an instrumental work with tambourines, of course. But you had the same sense of rhythm and the forward drive just from the voices. It was really magical. Thank you. Beautifully done. You talked about getting perspective from 30,000 feet. I don't know how many meters that is. Forgive me. But when the plane is flying across oh, they, the no, I mean, they still say it's all in feet, wherever you are in the world. What are you talking about? <laughs> now, height in a plane. But because you do go to places, you go to the U.S., you go to Singapore, you go mm. all around the world. 
Has that had any effect on your faith as you see all these children of God approaching something divine in their own way? Has that caused you to think or to appreciate or to expand your heart? Or I, I'm already trying to put words into no, your mouth. No, no. I'd love to know what effect that has on you. So I think one of the most moving moments I've experienced in my time in the group was in 2014 in Beijing, where there is a really, really serious division between church and state. Yes. And there are lots of, I mean, religious music just can't be performed normally. So you can't perform Handel's Messiah in a concert hall or whatever. You can't perform religious Christmas carols. And we were given special dispensation to lead a workshop, or we've been asked to lead a workshop in the Wangfujing Cathedral, which is usually only available for the government to do a workshop in there and there were three choirs all Chinese choirs singing religious pieces and, like, mm. and beautifully kind of slushy western ones by Eric Whitaker and Morton Lawrence and things and we were all crying we were just all like bawling throughout this throughout this workshop because we thought how on earth is it possible that we are the privileged ones that get to lead this and mm. kind of bring people together and kind of break down boundaries and barriers that have existed for ages and I think it's I mean, it's testament to this idea that music finds harmony. You know, music is the, the, the thing which stops barriers from being set up and, and, and allows people to do things together. But yeah, I do find it really moving because each in their own way, you find ensembles and kinds of people all over the world who might, let's go into some stereotypes here, you might, find, you might say that some Russian choir is incredibly cold and hostile from the way they, they look at you, or some, I don't know, Italian ones are very, very forthcoming or English ones are very reserved and it's really funny when you know through through singing people are either softened or they're unlocked mm. and you you start to see more of the the real people at the core rather than the kind of front that is put up and I think that that's something which I've really seen a lot of over the past 11 years and which makes me incredibly happy I also think that it's a real joy to see people who normally don't cry cry mm. I think just when when you see that kind of emotion untapped it's not that they haven't connected to it but they've, they've it's when they let themselves be seen like that as mm. well you know you ah. s I can think of moments here in the states where I've had like six foot six burly bearded men like reduced to crying like babies and after the concert sort of give me a hug and I thought I don't think you're normally prone to this kind of softness but <laughs> please please I'm glad I could be part of this journey with you <laughs> that's beautiful what piece shall we go out on what shall we listen hmm. to this week Give us something on the gentle side or something where we'll go, wow, that bass, he knows what he's okay, doing. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's a beautiful it's a beautiful piece on the album. It's called The Shepherd's Carol by Bob Chilcott. I mean, I end on a bottom B, which is quite fun. But it's a piece that we performed last year when we had to help out the choir of King's College, Cambridge, when all their choral scholars had COVID and oh. they, had, they had to do the, the, the internationally broadcast TV recording. And so the, it was just... The lessons and carols? Yeah, exactly. So was, oh my well, exactly. goodness. So the, the choir did the normal radio ones, but for the TV broadcast, it was us and the boy choristers. And it was incredibly special. And as part of that, we did two or three a cappella numbers, and this was one of them. I had so many of my friends message me on Christmas Eve saying it was just so beautiful and it was so moving and lovely to see all the TV and things. It means it's really special. And this piece was originally written for the choir of King's College Cambridge and then Bob rewrote it for the King Singers. So he just adapted it so it suited our ranges as well. It's incredibly beautiful and atmospheric. If you want to hear a bass, yeah, you get a bottom B at the end, so that's nice. 
One of the things that is most delightful about you is that with all these incredible experiences, you are appreciating them as they are coming, it sounds like. I think it would be mad to do this job and not be grateful for them because it's so rare, I think, to have a job that one, takes you all over the world and two, allows you to connect with people doing a thing that is loved by them. A job or not, it's a gift to the rest of us. I've been speaking with Jonathan Howard of the King Singers. Johnny, thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Well, thank you so much, Neil. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.